Grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen. Um, that is my kingdom greeting to you. Now let me give you our Philadelphia greeting. How you doing? Very good. The guys got this. All right. So at the men's retreat this weekend, we we were te- I was teaching them how we how we stay current with each other in our city, and it's like that. And for those of you who didn't say how you doing back, I suppose I'll give you a chance. You laughed, but what you're supposed to do is say how you doing. All right. So let's try it again. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful because I have the privilege of being here with you. I've often. I've often wondered, imagined what this congregation looked like, how it was composed and comprised for probably the last 13 years. Um, and the reason it's been 13 years is because that's the first time I had the privilege of meeting Tim Kerr. Um, it was 2006, we were at a Sovereign Grace Men's Retreat in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was the first time, thankfully not the last time, that I prayed with that man. And so from that day till this day, um, as we've had the joy of walking out partnership in our family of churches, um, Tim um, has continued to be a significant means of grace in my life um, in relationship to the power and the priority of prayer, not only in the life of the believer, but in the life of the church. And so I've envisioned the church in which he served in that way and led in that way. And then over the last three years, getting to know Josh as well, and just seeing the wisdom of God in bringing these two brothers together to serve and lead in this church, in this city. So it's, it's a joy to be here with you. And in fact, it's also, from being with the men, it's actually good to be with you now because there are actually women in this church. This church looks a lot better today than it did this weekend, okay? It is wonderful to be here with you as the whole church with you, my brothers and sisters. I'm glad to be here with you um, because even though we are separated by geography, um, we are united as family because of Jesus. And so it really is a blessing and a privilege to be here with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though we will, be sep- we will be separated by geography, according to the will of the Lord, there is coming a day where we will experience the most amazing family reunion when we are gathered together in the presence of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. We will get to be together with Jesus forever. Amen? That is a wonderful prospect And may the Lord hasten the day when we get to be with the Lord together forever. Um, These leaders in your church not only have a heart and a passion for you and this congregation, having spent time with them this weekend, extended times of prayer and conversation, it's very obvious that these uh, leaders of yours also share within their hearts a deep burden to see Toronto and the greater Toronto area um, influenced by the power of the gospel that more and more men and women and children from all across the GTA would come face to face with the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
and their prayers for this area, their prayers for this city to come more and more under the influence of the power of the gospel is something that I've been encouraged with, that I've had the joy of entering in with, and in particular, in my role as as the director of church planning and mission, Um, It is a joy to be able to now have even a greater understanding of how I can partner in prayer and in strategy with you um, to see this gospel of grace continue to spread. Um, It wasn't until this past October um, that um, I was just the director of Church Family Mission for U.S., um, but in God's kind providence this last fall, that extended to Canada and the Caribbean. (laughs) So... So I heard that Toronto is the place to be this time of year, and the Caribbean is the, t- is the place to be in around February um, and March. Um, but it truly is. I, I take this stewardship seriously. I take this opera. I, I, I treat this responsibility with great fondness, and I anticipate the Lord doing some significant things in your midst as He takes what's here and uses it as a significant means of spreading out into more areas throughout the GTA for the sake of the gospel. So I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It is a privilege, not a right. Would you take your Bible and go to John chapter four? John chapter four, in just a few moments, I will be reading John four, 27 through 42. Um, back before I was married, um, in, the, in my academic days, um, I had a number of friends of mine who were going through the rigors of intense academic seminary training. And for any of you who are recently removed from the academic environment, you know the days leading up to finals are pretty intense. Big exams that count a lot towards your final grade. Projects need to be turned in. So we're bracing ourselves for the intensity of finals week. And so before the, the, the flurry of intensity hit us, uh, my friends and I decided that we're just going to take a day to just take a break and breathe. And so I had a friend who had a friend who had a lake house. Don't you love to have friends like that? And we were going to spend the day hanging out on the lake, chilling out on a pontoon boat, doing some, doing some uh, water activities, and we were going to try, operative word, try to water ski. How many of you have ever water skied? I'd never water skied before. I really wanted to. I mean, being from Philadelphia, being an urbanite, I mean, living in the concrete jungle, we don't have lots of opportunities for water activities. Um, So I was really looking forward to this opportunity. And so we get out there on the jet boat. My best friend, Jeremy from college, he gets out there first. He puts on the jet skis. He grabs the tow rope. The boat takes off. In a matter of moments, he's up on the water, gliding at like 60 miles per hour. It was just obvious that he had done this before. Well, how do I know he'd done this before? He was doing it one-handed. He was doing the behind the back, leg up in the air, like, all right. Then it was my turn. It was my turn. I put on the same skis. I grabbed the same tow rope. The boat takes off, no dice. (laughs) Wasn't happening. I tried again and again and again, and I never got up 
on the water. That was almost 20 years ago, and I've never tried to water ski again. Maybe that's how you feel about your missional life. What do I mean by missional life? I'm talking about embracing your identity as a disciple-making disciple. It involves evangelism, but it's so much more than evangelism. It's living your life on purpose with the gospel. It's about introducing people to Jesus who don't know Jesus, and it's about helping those who already know Jesus continue to observe all the things that he's commanded. It's a life lived on purpose with the gospel. And maybe a faithful and fruitful missional life is something you've longed for, something you've prayed for, and you've tried to be faithful, being on purpose with the gospel. But your missional life has just never seemed to get up off the ground, and you're discouraged. And you can't even remember, when's the last time I shared the gospel with an unbeliever? Maybe you've given up. Maybe you've just left that kind of living for other Christians who are good at it. Well, if that's the way you feel this morning or this afternoon, I've got some good news for you. You are not alone. And Jesus wants to help us. We find ourselves in John 4, 27 through 42, and it is here, I believe, that we will find the help of Christ. Uh, Before I read the text that we'll be drawing from, let me set up the context of John 4 more broadly. If you are not familiar with John chapter 4, it is what's traditionally referred to as Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus and the 12 disciples have just left Judea and are on their way back to Galilee. And in order to get there, they have to pass through Samaria. Now, Jews typically avoided passing through Samaria at all costs because Jews and Samaritans have experienced long-standing religious and racial tension. Verse 9, which is not in the text I'll be reading, says it quite succinctly. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But all throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus walking through these social barriers because they're unjust and because he is the savior of the world. So when they get to the Samaritan town of Sychar, Jesus is tired and the disciples are hungry. So Jesus finds a place to rest next to the neighborhood watering well while the disciples head to Tim Hortons to get something to eat. And it's during this time, while the disciples are getting lunch, that Jesus has a conversation with a very needy Samaritan woman. Her biography is the stuff of tabloids. Divorced and remarried five times, and presently living with her boyfriend. I mean, that stat alone pushes her to the margins of society. Suffice it to say, she's not exactly the first person you think about inviting over for dinner. This is probably the woman that most wise wives warned their husbands, stay away from her. Her sexual and relational brokenness makes her an outcast. 
And here's Jesus sitting alone with her at this well, telling her things that only God could know and making her promises that only God could keep. She comes to this well a dry, broken, shame-filled soul. But after encountering Christ, she leaves refreshed, renewed, redeemed, and eager to go back to her village and tell as many people as possible what she encountered with Christ. And before I go any further, let me just say this. If you're here this afternoon and you feel dry, you feel broken, you are carrying the shame of your sins that you have committed over this past week, I got good news for you. You can leave today refreshed, renewed, and if you're not a follower of Christ this afternoon, redeemed, because we've gathered here this afternoon to encounter the same Christ. This is what has taken place when the disciples return and Jesus begins to teach them and teach us what it means to hunger for more people like this woman to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to know that there are people like this woman all over your city who are deeply broken yet ripe for entering the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is going to inform us this afternoon that your city, the city of Toronto, the greater Toronto area, is a harvest field that is ripe for men and women and children from all walks of life and backgrounds who are ripe for entering the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants you to be hungry to see them come in. Your city, according to Christ, is a harvest field. And he wants you to find energy and satisfaction in doing the work that it takes to gather them and bring them in. With that in view, let me direct your attention to John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. Let us hear the word of God. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months 
Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and teaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 34. My Food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is obviously using food here in a metaphorical sense. He's saying that just like food gives you energy and just like food brings you satisfaction, Jesus says, doing the work the Father sent me to do to bring in the harvest of souls brings him a deeper kind of energy and a greater kind of satisfaction. Jesus is saying this because he wants to not just inform his disciples about how he feels about these kingdom moments. Jesus is saying this to his disciples because he wants them to join him in hungering for the harvest. He wants them to join them, join him in finding their energy and finding their satisfaction in the food of mission. He's laying out this teaching because he wants all of his disciples to join him in the deeper hunger of wanting more and more people, like this woman in our text, more and more people to enter his everlasting kingdom. In other words, I believe I can say to you, Sovereign Grace Church Toronto, based upon the authority of God in this text, Jesus wants you to join him in hungering for the harvest of this city. Jesus wants you to long for more and more people, more and more neighbors and friends and family members and co-workers like this woman to turn from idols to the living God. Jesus wants you to join him in finding energy and satisfaction in doing the work that it takes to gather the harvest that has been secured by his life, death, and resurrection. And if you're like me, you may say, yeah, I do want to see more people come into the kingdom of God. I, I do want to see more people saved, but I'm not sure if I could describe it as a hunger. 
I'm not sure if I could describe it that way, but I want to want it like that. I'm hungry to be hungry. So here's the question I want to ask this morning from the text. There's much to draw out of this text, but I just really want to focus on answering one question that I believe this text answers. How do we increase our hunger for the harvest? As we look at John 4, 27 to 42, I want us to consider that increasing our hunger for the harvest involves at least three activities of the heart. Let me give you all three ahead of time and then we'll work through them one by one. If we want to increase our hunger for the harvest, first it involves renewing our affections, verses 27 through 30, reorienting our values, verses 31 through 34, and then recognizing our opportunities, verses 35 through 42. First, if we want our hunger for the harvest to increase, first, it involves renewing our affections. Here's the principle. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your affections for Jesus increase. This woman has just encountered Christ. And as you can imagine, her heart and her mind are blown away by what she has encountered in the Savior. Here's what captures her heart. Look down at verse 28. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, now there is some exaggeration here. Jesus, in the text that we just read, did not tell her everything she's ever done. But isn't it true? When we are amazed, we tend to exaggerate. And that's okay. It's like Gandalf said to Bilbo in, in, in The Hobbit. Bilbo, my dear friend, every good story deserves its fair share of embellishment. And that's what she's doing here. I've just met someone who's told me everything there is to know about me. Could this be the Christ? She's amazed by her encounter with Jesus. She's amazed for a number of reasons. Jesus knew the depths of her heart. Jesus knew her sin-stained past. Jesus knew her moral failures. Jesus knew she was seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. Jesus knew the ins and outs of her sinful behavior, not only, not only repudiated by God, but also even just simply social, socially reprehensible. Jesus knew all of these things about her, and yet he loved her. He didn't reject her. He didn't see her come to the well and then walk away. She was used to that. She was used to getting water when no one else was there. That's why she's getting water at this time of day. Why? Because she was used to people rejecting her. She was used to people pushing her away, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus invites her to the well of his mercy. Jesus invites her to be a true worshiper. Jesus invites her to receive living water at no cost. That's grace. You see, Jesus, the savior of the world, invites people into the everlasting kingdom of God, not because they deserve it, 
but because he's merciful to sinners. And this captured her heart. This amazed her. And notice what it led to. Her being amazed by her encounter with Jesus caused her to go back to her village and tell everyone she could, I have encountered Jesus and you need to encounter him too. So here's the reality. The more we live in amazement of what Jesus has done for us, the more we will long for others to encounter him too. The more you live in awe and wonder that Jesus has sought you, has forgiven you, has accepted you, has covered your shame, has removed your guilt through his life, death, and resurrection, the more you are aware of all that Jesus has done for you, the more you will want others to encounter Jesus the more you are amazed and remain amazed that Jesus sought you when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he will, your heart will be motivated to want others to be found by the same Savior. Do you believe that? So what will fuel your heart most powerfully for mission? What will fuel your heart to remain faithful in evangelism is being constantly amazed by Christ. I mean, think of all that's true about you because Jesus sought you and saved you. In Jesus, church, you are forgiven. All of your sins, every single one of them, past, present, and future, have been atoned for by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus and you are no longer under your sin. You have been freed from your sin because in Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus, you are justified. You used to be far away from God, separated by him, from him because of your sins, but now you have been reconciled to God. The access into God's very presence has been opened to you, so now you can be as close to the Father as Christ is to the Father. This is what's true about you, church. Is this not amazing? Is this not outstanding? Is this not marvelous? Shouldn't we want others to know how amazing grace truly is? And this woman was so amazed that she couldn't wait to tell others what Christ had done for her. So church, let me ask you, out of love, out of care, have you lost your wonder? Are you still amazed? Have you been following the Savior for so long now that you forget and it's been a long time since you've closed your eyes and you've clenched your fists and you've said amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you forgotten what Jesus did to pursue you? Has it gotten old 
have you lost sight that he has not rejected you, but by his mercy has accepted you? Has it become less amazing that Jesus knows every single thing about you? Knows every skeleton in your closet and has yet to withdraw and never will. You see, church, the more we live in the reality of what Jesus has done for us, the more you will long for others to experience it. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as your affections for Christ increase. So ask yourself not to torture yourself, but to grow as a follower of Christ. Has there been a time in your life, believer, where your affections for Christ have been more fervent? Has there been a time in your life where your amazement in the gospel was more sweet and tender? What has changed? Christ has not changed. The condition of our hearts often change. So if you find yourself in a place this morning where you sense your affections for Christ declining rather than increasing, I would just encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to take some time to explore that. Why? Get the people around you who, who love you the most and know you the most, your, your spouse, your closest friends, those in your tag group. Ask them to help you discern what has contributed to a decline in your affections for Christ. And I cannot project how that conversation will go. I do not know what that will lead to, but I would give you one word of encouragement and exhortation if you choose to do that. When you're done, have those brothers and sisters pray over you and pray over you in a particular way. Paul has given us a prayer that I think relates to this in a very significant way. Pray the words of Ephesians 3, 14 and following over that brother or sister. That the father, the father who is the father of every family on earth, that he would pour out into your inner being strength by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that you may be renewed in knowing what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ, that you may be renewed in affections for Jesus. This will not only lead to deepening affections for Christ, I believe, according to this text, according to this amazing story that has been preserved for us, it will lead to longing for others to encounter that same grace. If you want your hunger for the harvest to increase, it will involve renewing your affections. Second, reorienting our values. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. All right, let's take a moment to pause. Let me ask you a question. Isn't food amazing? Food is good. 
Yes, thank you. Food is amazing. I like food. You like food. We all like food. We're going to eat food together in just a few moments. I like food. It energizes you. But you know what? It tastes really good. I like to eat. One of the reasons why I was involved in highly competitive athletics for most of my life and the reason why I continue to still exercise at the age of 42 is for one reason and one reason only. I like to eat. And that's why one of the reasons why I've loved coming up here to Canada this week, uh, there's something that I really, really enjoy, and it may seem a little common to you, but I love Tim Horton's maple dip donuts. We don't have them in the States, and I have quite an affection for them. I use that word intentionally. I love them. Um, because back when I was in high school, I was recently converted as a teenager, and I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Nova Scotia, Canada, um, to Halifax to work at a Bible camp called Forest Glen Bible Camp where we tore down some old cabins and built up some new ones um, for those campers who would be served there in the summer months. And we were driving around and it seemed like on every corner there was a Tim Hortons. And so we need to find out what is this Tim Hortons? You know? And so we go in there and we find these maple dipped donuts that I believe are that must be what manna tasted like, okay? <laughs> so, so since I've been here, I've had one every day. And I don't feel bad about it. It's amazing. I like food. Uh, you like food. If you ever come to my city, you want to come and visit Philadelphia. I know some of you have been to Philadelphia. If you want to come to my, my city and visit, I, I will introduce you to one of the culinary wonders of the world, the cheesesteak. Okay, the cheesesteak sandwich is indeed a culinary wonder of the world, and I will take you to the best place. Please, if you do come to my city, don't don't listen to the people who who tell tourists what to do. They always send you to the to the bad places. I know the real spots. Okay, let's hang out, eat a cheesesteak, and you will you will agree with me that it is amazing. Okay, food is good. We like food. Food is amazing. Eating lunch is important. It energizes you. It satisfies you. But here Jesus is saying, and the disciples say, Rabbi, eat. You need some food. You need lunch. Jesus says that there's a place where he finds greater energy and greater satisfaction. There was a greater food he valued. He says it in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here's what Jesus is doing here in that statement. Jesus is letting us in on his value system in a super practical way. More than anything, Jesus values doing the work the Father sent him to do. More than anything, he wants to help broken people find their way into the kingdom of God. And when faced with a decision between two good things, Jesus will sacrifice the less valuable for the more valuable. In other words, Jesus was willing to sacrifice a good thing for a better thing. He sacrificed his lunch for the harvest. Now, this is just a small sacrifice. 
compared to the ultimate sacrifice he will pay to make way for sinners to enter into the kingdom of God when he's betrayed and arrested, falsely accused, and endures the grueling torture of crucifixion, taking the sins of his people in his place on the cross. Now, although we will never suffer and sacrifice in that particular way, Jesus is teaching his disciples, Jesus is teaching us that there are kinds of sacrifices that he made that we also must consider making if we're going to be his ambassadors. Jesus valued saving sinners more than filling his belly, even though filling his belly wasn't wrong. Jesus valued helping this woman find living water more than getting a drink of physical water himself. I find it very hilarious, comical. I think this is even part of John's intention that early on in the text, Jesus asked for a drink of water. By the end of this text, it's two days later, and he still hasn't gotten a drink. Doesn't mean he didn't drink any water. It means that he didn't get water when he asked for it. Jesus valued the opportunity to stick around for two days, teach the Bible, proclaim the gospel, and heal broken people in Samaria before heading back to Galilee, which was his original plan. See, Jesus valued mission more than sticking to his schedule. What does this mean for us? It means if we are going to grow in our hunger for the harvest, if we are going to grow in our involvement in the kingdom work that is required for bringing people to Christ and entering into the kingdom of God, it is going to require sacrifice. Sacrificing a good thing for a better thing. And just to give some pictures of what this could possibly look like for some of you. Very often, we will be put in positions, my brothers and sisters, to give up a good thing in order for a better thing, especially as it relates to meeting people's needs with the gospel. I mean, just imagine with me, it's Monday morning, tomorrow. You didn't get a great night's sleep. You wake up at the last minute. Maybe you hit your snooze button maybe too many times. Any snoozers in the house this morning? Okay, is everything okay? Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Okay, um, I am too, okay? Um, and so you get up at last minute. Oh, no, you, you, you don't even have time to really get in the word and pray that morning. You grab your coffee. You, you run to work. It's finally lunch break. And you've thought for the last couple hours how you would like to use that lunch break. You like to go in there, open up your maple dipped, glazed Tim Hortons donut. All right, that was supposed to be funny. Thank you. Um, and you got your book. The book that, you, that, that Pastor Josh said you should read. Like, if you're a Christian, you don't read this book. I mean, you might not be a Christian. Okay, one of those kind of books. You know what I'm talking about, right? And let's just say you just can't wait to open it up and read it. And so you open up to the chapter that you left off. And as you lift up your head and look across the break room, you notice one of your coworkers is a mess. They're crying. They're not eating. Something is wrong. In that moment, you have an opportunity to sacrifice a good thing, Knowing God by J.I. Packer and a better thing, 
going across the break room, sitting down next to your coworker, asking them what's wrong, and looking for an opportunity to give them the answer that is the answer to all that's wrong. Jesus. Is there anything wrong with eating your lunch and reading that book? No, it's a good thing. But in that moment, sacrifice may be required for a better thing. Some of the parents in this room, you may be involved in in sports or different extracurricular activities with your children. And, And what often happens at these events, you have to take your kids to these events. And while they're practicing, and let's be honest, what they're doing isn't always that fun to watch. So the coaches are doing your thing and you whip out your phone on the sideline, you pull up Instagram, and you're looking at people wearing things you wish you could wear, eating things you wish you could eat, and then you like them because you feel like you have to. Right? You're on your phone. And then you look to your left and you look to your right and there are 12 other parents doing the same thing on their phone who desperately need a friend who will point them to the friend of sinners. Maybe that's a moment to sacrifice a good thing in order to give yourself to a better thing. Do you see where I'm going with this? This is what Jesus is modeling for us as the friend of sinners. He's letting us in on his value system that when presented with an opportunity to show someone how they can enter into the kingdom of God, he will sacrifice a good thing, lunch, for a better thing. Let me tell you about living water. So what will motivate, sustain that willingness to make those sacrifices? Notice what it was for Jesus. Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I believe what we see here is that Jesus' willingness to sacrifice for the sake of mission was fueled by a sense of responsibility. This is what the Father sent me for. Eating food isn't bad, but this is what the Father sent me to do. God so loved the world that he he gave his one and only son to seek and to save the lost. This is what he was here to do. He understood the will of the Father. He understood the mission he was sent to accomplish. And the same must be true for us. If we're going to be willing to say no to good things in order to say yes to more valuable things like telling people about Jesus, like healing the hurts of broken people, then it must be fueled by a sense of responsibility. Church, this is what we're here for, to represent him to share him, to do good works in his name, letting our light shine so that the Father is glorified in heaven. Later on in this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples in John 20, 21, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, just like the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends his disciples, so Jesus sends his church, so Jesus sends us. Every disciple of Jesus is sent as a disciple-making disciple. You know, that's what's true about you, right? You realize this, that you are a sent one. If you're a follower of Jesus this afternoon, 
you are sent on mission with the gospel. Isn't it, it's interesting, as we, as we kind of go through the catalog of things that are true about us because of our identity in Christ, this is one that often gets left off the list. We are just as sent as we are justified. We are just as sent as we are reconciled. We're just as sent as we are redeemed. We're just as sent as we are forgiven. We're just as sent as we are adopted. Part of your identity in Christ is that you are a sent one. Go, make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's make this super, super practical. You live where you live. You work where you work. You do and enjoy life where you do and enjoy life, not by accident, but by a providential act of sending. Christ has sent you to live where you live. Christ has sent you to work where you work. Christ has sent you to have the proclivities that you have to enjoy the things you enjoy, music, sports, food, activities, reading, the library. You find yourself in spaces and places every day that are, that are, that are the outworkings of the kind of person that God has made you to be. Why are you there? Not by accident, because Christ has sent you there. You don't just live where you live because you found a good deal on real estate, although I heard it's hard to, I've heard it's hard to do that around here. But you ended up in that space, that home, that apartment, that condo, not just because you got a good deal, but because in God's providence, the one who's orchestrating all of human history, all of time and space, ordering the spaces and places where we live and move and have our being, has sent you there to represent Christ. So valuing the work of mission and being willing to make the sacrifices in order to gather the harvest is fueled, motivated, and sustained by embracing our identity as sent ones. Your hunger for the harvest will increase as you reorient your values around the kingdom. Finally, if you want your hunger for the harvest to increase. It not only involves renewing your affections, it not only involves reorienting your values, but finally, notice how it involves recognizing our opportunities. Verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. As Jesus is teaching this lesson to the 12, he begins to be approached by a large group of Samaritans coming from the village, having heard the witness of this woman, now wanting to see for themselves, who is this Jesus? And so Jesus is explaining this and continuing with the agricultural metaphor. He says, look, lift up your eyes. The fields are ready for harvest. And here's something that Jesus points out in his words in this section of the text. He, 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 he dials into our human tendency to think that harvest opportunities are always somewhere down the line rather than right before us in the moment. 
Uh, many scholars would uh, believe that this event is actually taking place in the month of December because harvest time was the beginning of April. And Jesus says, you think you have to wait four months for the harvest. That may be true in literal agricultural terms, but I'm telling you spiritually, in the kingdom of God, harvest time is now. In fact, it's always harvest time. That's the principle. It's always harvest time because here's what's true. God is always up to something in the lives of people all around us. Even before we interact with people, God is at work. One of my privileges in our family of churches is to teach on church planting and missiology in our pastor's college. And very often in our class, I will talk to our pastors, especially those who are oriented towards church planting, and I will ask them what they believe God is calling them to do. And they will often use terminology like this that I often call out. They will say, we want to go and start a work in fill in the blank. And I look at them and I say, that's a myth. You are not starting anything. God is already at work. And he is calling us to join him in what he is already doing in particular places with particular people. Jesus says, I have sent you to reap where you have not sown, others have labored, and I've sent you into the harvest. Jesus is saying that, that the Father, by the life-giving Spirit, is already at work in the people all around us so that when we encounter them, there's already a work taking place. God is already at work in their lives. God's already used other people to sow the gospel into their lives. God's already using providential circumstances to prepare them to see their desperate need for the Savior. And so Jesus says, go. The harvest time is now. I'm at work. Go and reap. Go and sow. It doesn't matter what part you play. What's glorious is that you have a part to play. And so what this means for us is so encouraging. As we consider the opportunities that are before us, the opportunities that are before you in the greater Toronto area, is that there are many, many people God is already preparing to enter into the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And let's be even more specific. There are many people that God is preparing for you to interact with, with the gospel. And those moments may be another moment of sowing, or they may be another moment, a, a glorious moment of reaping. Whether we're sowing or whether we're reaping, we play a part in what God is doing to build his everlasting kingdom. Isn't that amazing? I remember I'm the, I'm the oldest of six boys in a very rough around the edges Irish Catholic family. Um, I was the first person in my family to become a follower of Jesus. Um, I was a, a kid who hung out in the streets in the inner city of Philadelphia. And through the faithful witness of a local church like yours, um, I heard the gospel of Jesus over a year of hearing that gospel over and over and over again by many, many people sowing into my heart. I finally came to Christ at a youth retreat 
with someone sowing the gospel into my heart that I didn't even know. Many were sowing. And that day of reaping came a year later. Ever since the day I've known, I've known Christ, I've had an intense burden for my family to come to know Christ. My brother Ryan and my brother Justin and my brother Keith and my brother Derek and my brother Scott. I've longed for them. I've longed for my mother and my father to come to know Christ. And for 30 years, I've been sowing the gospel into their lives. By God's grace, by God's grace, about a decade ago, my brother Justin came to know Christ. After many years of sowing in his heart, and, but he went through a season of backsliding and falling away from the Lord. And during that time of struggling with obedience and faithfulness to Christ, he married an unbelieving woman. And she was sweet, and we loved her. And immediately my wife Rachel and I had a great burden to see Giovanna come to know Christ. And so we spent so much time with them, just enjoying life for them as family, sowing the gospel seed into their hearts, begging God to save her, bringing them out to church, and then they just went away. Five years later, I get a phone call from Giovanna. Ian, I've put my trust in Christ. I said, okay, this is awesome. Tell me the story. Well, she began to explain to me how my brother Justin started to come back to the Lord. And as my brother Justin was coming back to walk with the Lord, it was through the faithful, faithful friendship of a Christian coworker. And this Christian coworker also developed a strong burden for my brother, his wife, and their family. And so he would come over there often and sow the gospel seed into their hearts and gave her a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And as she read that book, God used the truth of the gospel contained in those pages and the eloquent apologetics of C.S. Lewis to open her heart to believe and trust in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Did I go, oh man, why didn't I get to be the one to reap that? All those years sowing into her heart, why didn't I get to be the one to see that happened. No, I didn't. I was rejoicing whether I was a sower or a reaper. What a privilege to play a part in reaping the harvest of the kingdom of God. My brothers and sisters, recognize the opportunities all around you. There are men and women, young and old, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family whether you have the need to have the endurance to sow and keep sowing, or you have the great joy of reaping and seeing that person converted, it doesn't matter what part we play. We get to play a part. This is how God builds his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Are you hungry? Do you want to see more and more of your fellow Torontoans? How would I say that? Oh, yeah, I like that even better. Torontonians turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you long for more and more people to be saved and to join you in the joy of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? If you want to grow in your hunger for the harvest, it will involve renewing your affections, reorienting your values, and recognizing 
your opportunities. And may the Lord bless your efforts as you seek to spread the fame of Christ in all your words and all your deeds. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we believe your word. Help our unbelief. Toronto and the greater Toronto area is a harvest field. There are many, many men and women and children who are ripe for entering the kingdom of God. They have been secured by the once for all atoning death and glorious resurrection of your son. They will and they must be saved. Jesus, all that the Father has given to you will come to you. Father, we believe that you have appointed both the end and the means, that it is your will that your people, your church would go in Jesus' name with the gospel, empowered by the spirit, advancing the cause of the kingdom in word and deed, and nothing can stop what you plan to do. And I pray that you build the faith of my dear brothers and sisters here at Sovereign Grace Church Toronto that they would believe that they have a significant part to play in what you're doing throughout this region. That they would see their hearts growing more hungry for it to be done. And so Father, I pray that you renew their affections for Christ. Help them to be amazed by grace. I pray that you reorient their values and help them to be willing to make sacrifices of good things in order to give themselves to better things. And I pray that you'd help them to have eyes to see all the sowing and reaping opportunities that you've prepared for each and every one of them and for this church collectively. And as a result, I pray, oh God, that many, many will be swept into the kingdom of God for your glory, for your honor, in Jesus' name, amen.